Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we turn our focus to psychosocial risk factors. Addressing psychosocial risk factors is an important part of creating a robust wellbeing strategy. It can be the difference between a wellbeing program that takes a band-aid approach and a wellbeing strategy that gets to the heart of workplace wellbeing issues. So has the pandemic changed psychosocial risk factors? And what can organisations do to identify and mitigate these risks? Joining us to explore this important topic is Professor Bevan Catley from Massey University. Drawing on the extensive New Zealand barometer research and other new research works, Bevan takes us on a journey to better understand the topic and the top issues. He also provides tips for wellbeing managers to better support employees now and in the future. If you'll indulge me, I'll start at the beginning. Um, so forgive me if I'm telling some of you how to, how to suck eggs, but it might just help give a little bit of, bit of context. Okay, so as we know, right, work impacts health and, and well-being and our health and well-being impacts our, our work. As um, you know, part of a business school, we're particularly interested in the way work impacts our health. You know, like, let's call it the work determinants of health. Because we know that, you know, coming to work uh, can be really uplifting and rewarding and really enjoyable, but it can also be a bit stink, right? There are negative, it can be stressful, it can be debilitating, and it can be uh, damaging. Now, for us, um, the design, organisation, and management of work is a key influence on the health, safety, performance, and general satisfaction of an individual and the way we experience that over our, our working lives. Now, the way work is organised, managed, and led, and the interactions this creates within you know, the context of, of our work, that's what we would term psychosocial factors, right? So psychosocial factors is the way work is organised, uh, designed, managed, and led, and the interactions, right? So that's psychosocial factors. Now, these psychosocial factors are, are neutral, right? but they can be positive or they can be negative. So when work is well-designed, organised, managed and led, it can contribute to positive outcomes. And not just in the sense of the absence of bad stuff, but in the sense of contributing to individuals and organisations thriving, right? Through enhanced motivation, self-confidence, uh, engagements, feelings of mastery, that kind of stuff. However, when work is not so well designed, organised, managed and led, uh, there's then potential for those factors uh, to, be, to be negative. So stuff like work overload, role conflict, uh, poor working relationships, and these create psychosocial hazards. And psychosocial hazards are events or situations that have the potential to cause individual and organisational harm, right? So we have psychosocial factors, uh, managed poorly can lead to hazards. Now, psychosocial hazards are one of a, a typical category in a, in a taxonomy of hazards. 
So in the New Zealand context, uh, if you think of WorkSafe, uh, WorkSafe have um, uh, five categories of hazards. They have physical hazards, chemical hazards, biological hazards, uh, ergonomic hazards, and psychosocial hazards. So those are the, uh, the, the typical um, hazards. <clears throat> Psychosocial risk then is the likelihood or the probability that a person will be harmed or experience um, adverse health effects if exposed to a psychosocial hazard, right? So psychosocial factors, psychosocial hazards um, can then lead, uh, uh, lead to harm. Now, while that sort of makes for a nice sort of uh, linear pathway, it is, of course, not like that. Um, psychosocial harm is, is, is multi-causal, uh, it's complex, uh, these things interact with one another. What is also really quite uh, a, a crucial is, is that most researchers would uh, would agree that psychosocial factors play a role in most, if not all, harmful outcomes. So they're really quite um, you know quite crucial part of making sense of uh, what's happening in your in your workplace. Hopefully that made some sort of sense. Yeah, that's a really good way of, of describing it. And then there's another term that I've seen come up, and we'll, we will get into the barometer uh, in a moment, but around this idea of a safety climate. Yeah, yeah. Do you, maybe I can talk about that when we talk about the barometer, yeah. because that is one of the one of the areas that um, is seen to be really, really uh, useful as a protective uh, factor. Uh, organisations that have strong psychosocial safety climates uh, then gives them um, some protective benefits. Mm. So I'm keen to jump into a few more of those those things that you alluded to in terms of the definition. So if you've got some stats there that we can get our heads around what this looks like, you know, on a day-to-day basis, perhaps in New Zealand or globally. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're not great. They're, well, they're good stats, but they're not, uh, they don't make for happy reading, I should say. So, you know, sometimes you get asked, well, well why should we care about the psychosocial stuff? Okay. There's plenty going on. So, um I guess my argument to you, and I'm, I hope I'm preaching to the converted, is we'd probably say there are three key reasons why you know you should you should care about that psychosocial stuff. <clears throat> okay, so the first one is around reducing the social and economic costs of, of, of harm. So if you want want some stats here, here are, I think are some pretty sobering ones from the New Zealand context. So this is out, out of WorkSafe. So in 2020, there were 66 work-related fatalities. That's down from 110 in 2019. And, and and why 2019 was a, an exceptionally uh, bad year uh, was because of Fakati White Island. Already in 2021, uh, WorkSafe have recorded 38 work-related uh, fatalities. On top of that, if that's not bad enough, uh, there are about 750 to 900 um, deaths each year from work-related ill health. So that's a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and a lot of, you know, lives uh, are lost and, and you know, and, and families uh, are devastated from those sorts of sorts of numbers. Um, about five to 6,000 hospitalizations each year as a result of work-related ill health. WorkSafe um, calculates that each year about 45,000 life years are lost as a result of work-related injuries and ill health. And that's running the full uh, spectrum. You know, that includes cancers, MSDs, injuries, uh, cardiovascular disease, hearing loss, you know, the, 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 whole, um, the whole horrible basket. 
of those 45,000 um, life years lost, about 8,500 are lost annually to work-related mental uh, ill health. So that's depression, anxiety, and so forth. So that's reason number one, which I think is a pretty good reason. Uh, reason number two is, of course, around our, our legal responsibilities, right? So psychosocial harm um, is, is arguably... Uh, implied rather than explicit in, in, in New Zealand legislation in the Health and Safety at Work Act. So we know uh, PCBUs have a, have a primary duty of care. Um, we know PCBU officers have uh, to exercise due diligence and workers need to take reasonable, reasonable care. And within that, that framework, both in terms of the purpose of the Act and within various sections of the Act, you know, the, there is now an emphasis on um, wellbeing, health, uh, and the maintenance of the work environment. And uh, within the legislation now, um, a person's behaviour has been explicitly uh, mentioned there as, um, as a hazard. Also, um, work-related health is one of uh, WorkSafe. So WorkSafe uh, is, uh, for those of you uh, not familiar with the New Zealand context, is New Zealand's um, national regulator. It's one of their key, one of their seven key priority areas. So that's the second reason. So harm, uh, fulfill our responsibilities. And then there is to reduce the individual and organisational harm. So at the individual level, uh, it's about addressing stress, violence, bullying, the injuries, the anxiety, uh, depression, cardiovascular disease. Uh, so that those individual um, harm. And then the harm at the organisational level to the organisation. So with those individual harms comes lost time, Productivity, absenteeism, turnover, uh, low engagement, uh, legal costs, reputational damage. So I think that's, in my opinion, three pretty compelling reasons why psychosocial um, risk, because we use that term to encompass the, the entire domain often, uh, is something that we should be very much thinking about along with our traditional uh, health and safety uh, concerns. Mm, I like the term catch-all because what I'm picking up as well is this, and I alluded to it at the start, is that actually looking at those things is the difference when we look at workplace well-being between, and I'm going to be facetious here and say the fruit bowl, you're looking at the fruit bowl and actually looking at some of those things that make a really big difference when we put the emphasis on them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, yeah. A lot of this is, is about getting back to thinking about, you know, the way work, you know, as I say, the way work is organised and managed and lead, and 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 how um, crucial that is to um, our, our well-being, and how well-being is also crucial to performance. So you can have your cake and eat it too. Okay, so investment in in well-being and investment in all this kind of stuff, um, you know, will have a positive impact on individual and organisational performance. Yeah, in some ways, it makes sense. If you have individuals who are feeling stressed and feeling anxious and feeling depressed, being bullied, they are not bringing their A-game to work. They are not, um, you know, being their best self at work. They, they, you cannot then expect them to be engaged and being motivated when basically uh, they might be uh, experiencing all these other, you know, pretty crappy things. I think we see that come up often, you know, we hear these stories from organisations where an organisation might do something like 
give employees a hundred dollar batch to spend on their well-being, and yet they're in an environment perhaps that's not supportive of any of those things. Is, is, are those things you've come across? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, a, a, a gesture like that, uh, you know, uh, will have value in and of itself, and will, you know, might be quite reasonably seen as a, you know, a, a really um, you know, a positive uh, thing and, and a really important symbolic gesture from the organisation, but that needs to happen within a within a within a suite of other things, right? Um, ultimately, what you want to be uh, investing your time and effort is in that primary prevention space, right? So, um, if those things don't actually end up changing the conditions, then you ain't going to see any of that that, that improvement. So. Um, yeah, it's about remembering that um, primary prevention is where it's at. Mm. And so I'm interested, we, we've also alluded to at this point, there's a new ISO out or there's a new framework out, but of course there are lots of frameworks. So how does an organisation start to make sense of a framework to use to even evaluate any of this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let me say that ISO. So I, uh, they just released, uh, I think it was in the year, ISO 45003, which is, Perhaps um, not the most exciting title you'll ever come across, but anyway. So uh, this, this ISO, uh, as I say, was released early in the year, and it is um, designed to give uh, practical guidance uh, on managing um, psychosocial uh, health and safety. It has some really great guidance on um, preconditions for implementing initiatives, identifying hazards, uh, and the management and monitoring of those hazards. So it's definitely worth uh, hunting out and uh, having a look at. Because um, I think it does a really good job of of being pretty user friendly and pre- and pretty practical orientated. Now, if you don't like that one, there are, as you say, there are plenty of plenty of others. So here's a couple of my favourites. Um, uh, in terms of broader frameworks, there's the ILO's Decent Work Framework, which is something I, I'm not sure gets too much press in the New Zealand context. Um, uh, I'll admit, I wasn't particularly au fait with it myself until I got asked to teach a course on it. So. I know a bit more than I than I did before. So the ILO uh, decent work framework is is much broader, uh, has a broader focus, uh, and it's built around what they uh, term these four pillars: uh, rights at work, employment creation, uh, social protection, and social dialogue. And then there are ten determinants that fall out of those four pillars. One of those being a safe and work environment. And uh, that ILO decent framework uh, underpins, or, or, or sorry, is integral to the to the UN agenda for sustainable development, which we probably are a little bit more f- familiar with. There's also the WHO's healthy workplaces, which I think has a bit more prominence um, yeah, in the New Zealand context, uh, and that uh, brings together four domains of action, and then they have a little uh, uh, around continuous improvement. Um, with at the centre being leadership engagement and, and work involvement. So those are two couple of global ones. But closer to home, um, Te Whare Tapawha is uh, you know, a very influential uh, model for understanding uh, Māori health uh, and wellbeing uh, developed by uh, Sir Mason Jury. And that, I think that uh, has, has, has a lot of um, you know, really uh, important and useful insights. And of course, there's all the stuff uh, available on Worksife. So how do you figure out? How, how do you, you know, maybe navigate all that like you asked? Well, I'd suggest it's coming back to having a really clear purpose about what you're trying to achieve and why. And, and then that will um, help to guide you to what I would suggest is basically cherry-picking things, right? 
So cherry picking from the frameworks and the measures that are evidence-based and you know ha- have some um, validity, if you will. Because what I think you're looking for for your own organization is developing an approach that you know is 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 contextualized it's tailored for your for your work and it's underpinned by ownership and, and and social dialogue so if you want you know a nice little uh um wasn't a, a alliteration um you know contextualized customized and consultation would be my uh three little c words i like those would you mind repeating those again because they were so good uh yeah what is it contextualized yeah. Customized uh, and consultation. Oh, now I'm going to pick up on that last one, consultation, because isn't that yeah. an interesting one in the organizations? You know, sometimes we do that well and sometimes yep. not so well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things um, that I've found quite interesting, um, you know, in terms of, you know, my own developing my own knowledge is how social dialogue uh, is internationally seen as fundamental to uh, a, a lot of this, uh, improving their the, the health and well-being. Um, and while that's replicated in New Zealand uh, in, in the Health and Safety at Work Act uh, in terms of that consultation uh, and, and, and participation, yeah, I think you're right. We probably do um, un- underplay it a bit, but um, it's absolutely, I think, vital if you're trying to get people to buy into these things and to make the initiatives that you want to put in place sustainable, basically. So not only effective, but also sustainable. If you want them to become embedded in organisational practice, to become um, part of your sort of BAU culture, I suppose, then um, people have got got to buy into it. So there's got to be a sense of ownership from management and that consultation and participation from the workforce and also your workers will have a very very good sense of what works and what doesn't in terms of that work environment right that is so true I mean how often do we hear things you know cascading down from management and yet it might look different you know in other parts of the business I do want to move to the barometer now so perhaps probably easiest to start with a bit of a description about the barometer and its purpose behind it sure yeah 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 so uh, yeah, it's a project um, that we started uh, uh, um, three or four years ago, and we're very fortunate enough to have some um, funding from from WorkSafe. So um, our, our thanks to WorkSafe for getting us off the ground. And the idea behind the barometer was we were very um, conscious that there's there's a gap in terms of knowledge and data uh, around uh, the, the, the both the prevalence and the nature and the impact of social psychosocial hazards and harm uh, and then you didn't workplace and we saw that the barometer has, uh, has been able to contribute to filling that gap so that's I guess the first um, uh, reason for doing it and then the second was about being able to um, you know give some practical help to, to organizations right so the idea then is uh, those organizations that participate in the barometer um, they get a they get a report they get some information back uh, on terms of their own, um, where they sit in terms of psychosocial risks for their organisation uh, that can be both monitored and, and benchmarked against um, other uh, other uh, organisations uh, participating in the barometer. So that was the kind kind of kind of the rationale uh, for it. Uh, what did we find? Do you want me to say? A couple yeah, Jeff Mitchell was going to say because it's happened over three years and you're currently doing the fourth one at the moment. Yeah, 
just just closed. So uh, if there's anyone out there who particip- uh, organisations participated in the barometer, thanks heaps. Um, uh, really really appreciate you being involved. Um, I think we had a had a had a, had a bit of a record uh, turnout this year. So um, we're really pleased and uh, busy working away on starting to prepare the reports and get those organisational reports out back to uh, organisations before Christmas. So um, look out for that as an early Christmas gift from the Healthy Work Group. What, 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 did, what did we find? So in terms of sort of big picture kind of stuff, um, unfortunately, New Zealand organisations and um, and, 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 and workers continue to be quite vulnerable to a range of psychosocial risks. So whether this be ill treatment, um, bullying, cyberbullying, sexual harassment, in particular bullying, um, uh, and also in terms of negative impacts to, to, to mental wellbeing. So about 50% of respondents in the barometer uh, from the 2020 data, which was about 1,400 uh, individuals, reported an absence for physical or mental uh, health in the last t- 12 months. That's half that sample reported uh, an absence uh, for physical or mental health in the last 12 months. But, uh, and the other thing I think that is important to take on board, and, I, and, and probably this will not come as a surprise to, to a number of you, but um, you know, there are different risk profiles. And so in other words, not all categories of workers have the same risk profile for ill treatment and, um, and the impacts on mental wellbeing. So for example, um, uh, female and younger workers were, uh, were more likely to report psycho, uh, psychological distress out of the barometer. Um, mental wellbeing was much higher for males and older workers. Uh, female and casual workers reported higher levels of job uh, insecurity. Uh, females and supervisors were more likely to come to work when feeling unwell. Older workers were way more engaged in their work than younger workers. Um, so those are the those are sort of some of the, the the high level things. But in terms of what does that barometer um, report in terms of how you might go or, uh, go about improving um, your workplace or your work environment. Where we're starting to land on is, is what we're sort of tentatively calling these, these four pillars, right? So where organisations demonstrate um, more strength in terms of organisational justice, uh, inclusion, psychosocial safety climate and management competencies the better they tend to be performing, if you like, in terms of, of well-being. So in other words, if your workforce perceives that they are being treated fairly uh, across all areas of the organisation and the employment relationship, they tend to report much uh, uh, stronger in terms of, of ill treatment and well-being. If they feel included in the decisions affecting work and have access to information, um, and have the resources to do the job, okay, that they also feel positive. The other is what we've mentioned before was that psychosocial safety climate. And what that is essentially is the workforce's perception that managers sincerely care about their well-being. Right? So in other words, management are visible, they have a substantive and ongoing uh, commitment to psychological um, health and safety, and they prioritise it. So basically, if your workforce perceives that management, senior managers, in, in particular, take this stuff 
seriously and do something about it and also include um, the workers in um, uh, decisions and initiatives around uh, psychological health and safety, the better the organisation is. And the, the fourth one is management competency. Competence. So where your workers perceive that in particular line managers and, and managers generally possess qualities or competencies such as um, having some having integrity, uh, empowering their staff, are good at conflict management, are empathetic, uh, are accessible and available, that also is positive. So uh, justice, inclusion, psycho, psycho social safety climate or PSC, management competencies. This, these are the four things that we are now starting to, to push. So if you are looking to invest um, some time and energy uh, in improving your work environment, those might be um, you know, four places where you could uh, think about uh, doing some work. And it sounds to me like those four do rest heavily on leaders, team leaders, management. You know, that sounds like there's a lot of influence from perhaps people in our audience around trying to bring those leaders on that journey. There'll be some who get it and some who don't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil, um, yeah. So, yeah, particularly, um, you know, the 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 the, the sincere and workers, I think, have an, an exceptional ability to know when it's just a box ticking, um, going through the motions kind of thing. Like nothing will destroy your initiatives quicker than, um, you know, than the perception that it's basically insincere, right? So having, uh, you know, senior uh, staff or influential staff that take the seriously committed, you know, consistent in that space is really important. And that's not just like the, the CEO, the senior manager, Put your first line supervisor. You know, if you think about it, again, I'm, I'm sure I'm telling um, people things they already know. You know, your, your first line supervisor in many ways is your organizational first responder, right? If they're the person that many staff are going to go to when they have, you know, the drama, right? And so if they don't have a good relationship with that, with that supervisor, their immediate manager, it's uh, either they don't feel they can trust them or they don't feel they can go and talk to them or they don't feel that the manager is going to do anything about it, kind of not a lot is going to help. And there's not going to be any of those improvements uh, that, that, you know, that you're wanting to see. Mm. That first-line responder, you know, team leaders as first-line responder is actually kind of, a, I'm sure, a bit of a light bulb for many people because we think of first responders as those people we're training up in mental health, you know, first aid or, or physical first aid. But actually, as you say, when we're thinking first responders, actually it's management. Yeah, and, I, and obviously this will depend a little bit on the size of the organisation and, and, and how work is, work is organised. But, um, uh, you know, having, a, having uh, managed a staff of, of 30 uh, in a large organisation, you know, there's lots of um, room for to not know what's going on and lots of, you know, you don't necessarily have the relationships. The most, the most close working relationship you're going to have would be with your immediate work group and probably your supervisor. Um, so then if your supervisor is really good at being able to um, read the, the health and well-being room, as it were, and can provide good guidance, uh, can solve problems, can be really proactive, basically be a good manager, um, 
then they're going to be able to resolve a lot of stuff at source before we need to start thinking about, well, okay, EAP, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And let's jump COVID over this because you're, the barometer has now been pre-COVID and during COVID, have you seen changes? Haha, <laughs> yeah, no. So that was one of the things that actually really was quite surprising is that in terms and methodologically, while we might have the same organisations, we don't necessarily have the same individuals. So making um, comparisons between years is, is a little bit fraught. But in general terms, we would have thought we might have seen a little bit more of impact from COVID, but, but we didn't. And so we were kind of like, hmm, that's a bit of a head scratcher. Why didn't we? Um, partly it might be because of the way the survey uh, is run uh, in the sense that uh, we got next to no organisations from, you know, like hospitality. So the organisations in the sectors that were most likely to have been impacted by COVID were not in the, not in the, um, not in the sample. Um, and also to um, individuals who might have been most impacted by COVID, um, you know, needed to be at work to be able to, to complete the service. So these, we might, we might not have captured the right, the right people and the right organisations that have been most Im impacted. Um, we would also like to think that these organisations that have participated in the barometer are, you know, are, you know, proactive in the space and, and, and doing things and have also been participating in the barometer, you know, um, maybe for their second, if not even their third time. So we would like to think that they are taking on board the information that they're getting and that they're making making changes and basically they're starting to build up some resource and starting to um, and some credit, um, which has allowed them to be able to buffer some of those impacts uh, uh, from COVID. So I'm hoping that it's as much uh, because those organisations are doing a good job, and, and I'm sure they are because having talked with people, there are lots of good people doing good things. In, in, uh, in a lot of the organisations. There's some good work going on. Mm. And what are you looking ahead to 2022 and whether it's across the academic literature or what you're seeing already from the barometer, what do you think's ahead? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's um, well, as an academic, the, the, the exciting part. I think part, you already, you already uh, mentioned it, that, you know, I think we'll see and hear a lot more about psychosocial risk and the psychosocial domain. Probably wasn't that long ago, um, you know, maybe two, three years ago, if you were talking to, to, to people uh, and you said, oh, psychosocial risk, and most people wouldn't be familiar with what, what is he talking about. So I think it's um, much more part of the, the, the health and safety discourse than perhaps it was. So, and, and I think that will continue given particularly the emphasis that WorkSafe has, has put on it. So that's the first thing. Um, I think next year there'll be, you know, continual development and refinement of this managing this uh, at work, at home um, uh, dynamic. So tweaking those uh, health and wellbeing uh, things. I think we'll also see some new and emerging uh, issues and perhaps some old issues given some, uh, given a bit of a new lease of life, as it were, uh, as, as they kind of manifest in these uh, in these new sort of uh, working arrangements. So uh, I guess what I'm sort of thinking here is. Next year, we might see a lot more around things like stress and overwork, uh, fatigue, uh, work-family um, uh, conflict, social and professional isolation, I think might be something um, that 
uh, will have to deal with. Um, perceived fairness of various arrangements, and, and probably uh, people in the audience have already had this, you know, had conversations about, well, you know, some people can work from home, some people can't. We, we've had this in our own place. Academics, it's much easier for them to work from home, but professional staff, professional, um, not so, not so uh, easy. Um, we might see more potentially because we're at home and online. Maybe um, cyberbullying might be something that um, we see a bit of an uptick in potentially. Um, working working from home with perhaps suboptimal workstations and work environment might breathe new life into um, um, musculoskeletal disorders, the MSDs, um, repetitive strain injuries, and the good old slips, trips, and falls. Right as we you know working on our um, kitchen, our ergonomic kitchen bench with power boards and extension leads all, all over the place. So, so we might so that might be the 2022 uh, view. If we were to look a bit further ahead, uh, what I'm uh, sort of interested in, 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 in exploring, because uh, that's the privilege I, I guess I get as being, being an academic, is the, the future work discourse and how those anticipated changes around the future of work conversation, how they'll impact on health and safety, especially if the if the the, the, the trends that are associated with the, the future of work, that they might exacerbate uh, those the sort of current, both current risk factors and, and trends. So what I have in mind here is, you know, the things that are associated with the future of work, like, you know, more flexible working arrangements, the casualization of the labor force, the rise in non-standard work, you know, the threats to social dialogue, which we've talked a little bit about, um, maybe uh, decreases in worker representation, a rise of the informal economy, AI, working longer hours, changes in demographics, all of these kinds of um, stuff that's going on in the, in, uh, in, in, in the world of work and how that, as I say, how that will impact. Um, so, you know, for example, what we see um, uh, higher injury rates and more severe injuries as our workforce gets older. Or and or might we see uh, less work-related injuries uh, as female employment continues to rise? Because we know that um, in general, female uh, workers have um, lower injury rates and less severe injuries. Might we see more stress and conflict and violence as a result of more insecure employment and precarious work? Might we see more threats to physical and mental well-being as people work longer hours and working multiple jobs? And have potentially less protections, less social protections. Um, you know, what is the what might be the impact of having less worker engagement and participation in health and safety? So, if we're already talking about it being a, a bit of a struggle now, what might it be like if the trends around casualization and precarious work and gig work and all those other sort of flash um, buzzwords? Um, you know, become a bit more, but 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 more prominent. So yeah, there's um, lots. Yeah, I'm not going to become unemployed anytime soon. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's um really interesting from the mental health perspective because I know a few of us have been grappling with. You know, we talk a lot about mental health awareness in organisations, and there there's a lot of kind of awareness based stuff. But actually, what you're talking to and alluding to there is some really big meaty issues that are in the on the horizon that 
will have a really big mental health impact. And it's not awareness. There's a lot of work that needs to happen behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and, absolutely. And, and I guess for some of those things, it's easy to think of them as being quite abstract and as happening either elsewhere or out there. But again, you know, um, you know, take take changing demographics. I mean, you know, COVID has has really, you know, highlighted, you know, issues around demography and, and you know and, and patterns of immigration, right, and all that kind of kind of stuff. And um, you know, there is now a reasonable conversation around, um, you know, older workers and and. Uh, managing older workers and the contribute contribution of older workers and part of the part of our other uh, thing we do is a is some work in that space and is trying to break down some of those um, you know uh, myths and misconceptions about older workers and you know one of the things we find, found in the barometer and other stuff we've done like you know if you want someone who's really really uh, going to be engaged well you know older workers tend to be more engaged so. Yeah, there's all those sorts of things. So, so in other words, they will have a concrete impact on your organisation. People uh, will need to be thinking about how you manage some of those 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 broader changes that will come and filter down to everyday uh, organisational life. Which is a good segue then into going. Okay, so if organisations are sitting here thinking, I really need to be across the psychosocial risk factors. Yeah. If they haven't done the barometer, how do they, where do they start? What are they looking for? Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, how long have we got? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so in some ways, and forgive me if this all sounds a bit slightly glib and, and flippant because it's way more complicated as I'm sure many people know. Okay, so, so in some ways doing the measuring is the easy part, right? It's about how making sure that you're, your measures are, are meaningful and, and useful and stuff, and that, and that's about having a, you know, a, a very much a, a systematic systematic approach. So, and that includes doing a lot of pre work, and that's where I think that ISO uh, standard can be quite useful. So, some some useful things before you get round to um, thinking about the measuring would be things like, well, okay, making sure you understand the organisation, your organisation and its context. Including the expectations of your of your workforce, you know, have you got the leadership commitment? Have you got the worker participation stuff? So on up. So, in particular, when we're talking uh, about bullying and, and talking probably with more um, an HR uh, focused audience, one of the things we like to, I like to say to the uh, HR is about not only do you have to be the expert in your organisation <clears throat> in, in terms of knowing, you know, stuff, all that kind of stuff. Um, but also to be the expert on your organisation. And that's understanding the way your organisation works, the context, the culture, the environment, all of that kind of stuff. So it's about having that domain knowledge, but also in terms of those technical competencies, but also understanding um, the way your organisation ticks. So being the expert in your organisation and the expert on your organisation. I think I mentioned this before about having a really clear plan about what are you trying to achieve and why. So one of the things when we talk to about the barometer um, Participants is okay. Well, what are you trying to do? You know, this is not about just trying to increase your score. What are you trying to do, and why? And then, so that's about having a plan, and then tying the indicators and the measures to that plan. Chances are, you already probably collect a good, good deal of data. So review, review your data and, and your knowledge for the evidence of harm. So this is about going through and doing a bit of a stop take, and asking yourself: So how does harm manifest in my organisation? And now you'll have, uh, chances are you'll either have some uh, 
pre-existing uh, measures, or you'll have some proxies for harm. So things like you know absenteeism rates, sudden resignations, you know drops in motivation and performance, that kind of stuff. And then, so having sort of a sense of where the where the harm is, then start to think about where the likely sources of that harm. And that's where you know going through the job description, doing the consultation, the talking. Um, you know, the incident re uh, reports, going through those, you know, your general observations. Uh, and, 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 you know, a useful way to be thinking about, you know, trying to identify those hazards would be thinking about the ones that are associated with the content of work and those that are associated with the context of work. And there's a nice little uh, taxonomy that sort of uh, uh, synthesizes down a lot of research uh, into basically, you know, the 10 sort of key hazards. Uh, and that might be a really useful way to, way to start uh, going, well, okay, to what extent do these play out in my organisation? And then it's then about thinking about, well, how likely are these hazards in terms of the, the you know, the risk to harm and then prioritising. Then you can start to think about then the measures. So what are, what would be the indicators of a failure? Okay? And then measure, and then uh, comparing that with the measures that you already have in place. And then adapt. So there's a lot of pre-work before we start uh, start uh, start doing uh, the measure. Um, you know, there, there are lots of measures out there. It's a bit first of about having a clear sense of what it is that you want to do, right? There are lots of things that will go out and measure stress or, or whatever it is that you, you want to. But don't just rely on the stats that you collect. That qualitative side, the getting out and the asking workers, asking supervisors, attending staff me meetings, um, you know, Doing that, the pulse check, the temperature check, whatever sort of way you want to think about it, of the work environment is also really useful, as well as just the numbers that come um, out of your out of your reports. So I have one last question for you, but I'm going to give the um, the heads up now to those uh, in the audience if you'd like to ask any questions of Bevan. Now's sure. a great time to put them into the chat. But my last question then really is, and I think that's. But it's really useful because it gives a really good framework for people to follow. If they stepped off the call now, what would be kind of like the top three things you would suggest that they did? Okay. Um, I guess this is talking about this, it might seem, oh, goodness me, I have to go and do a whole lot of stuff. So first of all, I'd be saying is you don't have to reinvent the wheel or develop a whole lot of new systems. Much of the improvements and the protections come from ensuring that you have a good management practices in a healthy work environment. So a lot of what I'm talking about actually comes back to management 101 kind of stuff. So doing those fundamentals uh, fundamentals uh, well. So don't reinvent the wheel. Second thing would be invest in management competencies. We're becoming quite a big fan of that. So, and that's right through the through that that process. Um, this is where uh, you know the HR side of things becomes becomes important. So you know, in terms of identifying those potential supervisors, yeah, by all means, um, focus on those technical competencies. But you also want you know the interpersonal competence, the soft skills, if you were. So making sure that they feature prominently um, in your um, uh, in, in, in your assessment of potential supervisors, and then continue to develop those competencies in your supervisors. Assess and re and reward them for demonstrating those competencies. Right? If you want people to be um, to, to display those kinds of behaviours, then you know, Psych One Hundred and One, reward them, um, and then commit, consult, and follow through. 
right? And that's what I was saying before about how box picking and sincerity will destroy your efforts. So those would be my sort of three big ones. Um, yeah, and then there's some more specific things, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, uh, around around the work environment. Mm. Um, I think that it's interesting if you think about that term psychosocial and just going to put the emphasis on the social side of it, isn't it? It's actually, it is a lot of those networks and relationships we have with other people, regardless of level in the organisation. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, what, you know, when you ask people, well, what do you love about your job and why do you keep coming? Uh, you know, most people will somewhere in the answer will talk about the people that they work with. Um, and if you ask people, why do you leave? Um, a lot of people will tend to talk about, um, you know, particularly the relationship with, with, with their manager. Um, uh, having a, a poor working relationship with your supervisor is often a key reason why people people leave. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W-Wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.